Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 2nd. Today, why Congress became so dysfunctional, how AI is being used to harass and humiliate women, and a NASA spacecraft visits the farthest object we've ever explored. This week, the 116th Congress is convening in the Capitol. We are, of course, in the middle of a government shutdown, which started just before the holidays. And now, with a divided Congress, it could all get pretty dysfunctional. But that's nothing new. My name is Paul Kane. I'm a senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post. Paul spends a lot of time on the Hill, reporting on all the wonky ins and outs of the legislative process. I think what I've seen with my own eyes, I'm the definition of insanity. I've been doing the same thing over and over again for 18 years at least, and that's sort of intensely covering Congress. And of course, over the years, Paul has heard more and more people say, Congress doesn't work the way that it used to. There's less compromise. There's more dysfunction. And for Paul, roaming through the halls of the Capitol, it often feels that way. But last fall, as the outgoing Congress was coming to a close, something happened that made him realize that this wasn't just a hunch. Derek Willis of ProPublica came to us and wanted to sort of try to document it in an actual data-driven way. A lot of it was just taking publicly available records that Congress keeps for itself. Things like the number of amendment votes, the number of how House legislation is considered under rules. A lot of that is just publicly available. And he was able to scrape it all from congressional websites and build a really crazy-looking Excel spreadsheet of all of this. The amount of times that committees are actually meeting to consider real legislation has plummeted in the last five to ten years. It's incredible. The drop-off from, you know, meeting, say, 250 times 10 years ago, 12 years ago, which is what – and this was a Senate – a Republican-led Senate at the time – all the way down to about 60 in 2015 and 16. You see it in those charts and you look at it and you realize, wow, this place is not the same that it was just 10, 12 years ago. But why does it matter how many votes on amendments are happening on the Senate floor? Like, why is that a metric of how well-functioning the Senate is? It's the metric of sort of how you learn how the place works. The thing about the Senate is... It's a body of 100. There are a lot of committees, but everybody can really wade into the issues if they want. And at least in the old days, that's the way it worked. And, you know, you would have an issue. You develop an expertise on something and there's a legislation coming down the pipeline that hits your sweet spot. You want to be able to then go in and try and offer an amendment to get your idea into this bigger, broader legislation. And for the rank-and-file senator who is not a committee chairman – who's not a member of party leadership, this is their way of getting involved and both impacting things and also just learning, learning the process, learning how to build a coalition to get support for your idea. 
So what you're saying is, is that when you see more amendment votes, that means that it's a more collaborative process. Absolutely. It's more collaborative. It's more bipartisan. You know going into a debate, if you're a Democrat and you're in the minority now, you know that you've got to draw something up that is going to try to get Republican votes. If you were a Republican five or six years ago, you would have been known you have to do something that gets Democratic votes to win. And you, you just get more collaboration, more thought, more input, more ideas thrown into the mix, and it creates better senators. Americans believe Congress is broken. And it began in part again, in 2013 and 14 where Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer were running the Senate Democratic Caucus and they were scared to death because they had all of these red state Democrats up for re-election and they just didn't want these guys to take any tough votes. And they really shut down the amendment process. They didn't want to have a guy like Mark Pryor from Arkansas to face some tough vote that the Republicans would throw out there that was probably designed to be a poison pill and turn into a 30-second ad that he would have to face back home. If you could ask Mark Pryor one question, what would it be? This is Democrats' fault, then. No, no. I mean, everybody's got a lot of blood on their hands in this one. Part of the reason that they didn't want to have their endangered Democrats to face these tough votes was because Republicans were being so politically poisonous by just coming up with amendment proposals that were really, really over the top. So it, as this is all unfolding, in 2014, Mitch McConnell, then the minority leader, would give a speech almost once a week. In the era of divided government control, we're going to have to work hard to meet expectations. One time it was like a really big, grand, every Senate Republican came into the chamber and sat there and listened to how he promised he was going to run the Senate. We need to return to regular order. We need to get committees working again. And it was going to be wide open. It was going to be a free-for-all. We need to open up, open up the legislative process in a way that allows more amendments from both sides. Well, McConnell came in and in the first couple of months, there were some pretty wide-open debates. And then it just disappeared. Then McConnell himself had six or eight really potentially vulnerable Republican incumbents up for re-election in 2016. And the Democrats also had some people who were up that year. They didn't want to see anybody take tough votes. All of a sudden, the amendment process basically shut down. And it hasn't come back since. So a lot of this data also showed that senators and members of the House are meeting so much less often in committees to talk about legislation. And you said that the in 2005 and 2006, the House met 449 times in committees on legislation, and that was almost half in 2015 and 2016, 254 times that they met together to talk about laws. Why, why is that change happening? I think it's because so many of those biggest issues of the day are being decided at the top by the leadership. When that happens, it sort of stifles a committee chairman and a committee chairman's power. All of a sudden, you find yourself just holding fewer and fewer hearings that are about real legislation. And instead, you begin to treat the committee like a 
sort of a public relations outfit and, you know, you go find that administration person who's just done something really embarrassing and blown a bunch of money on a Vegas conference or something and you haul that person in front of the committee and you get a bunch of national TV cameras there as you embarrass this, you know, poor sap. How much of that do you think is because of social media or cable TV or this sort of awareness that that's how a lot of people engage or understand what's happening in Congress now is these like moments where they're in hearings, not talking about legislation, not coming up with solutions, but instead just like hammering at someone who's uh, who's giving testimony. I, I think the, the, the best way to answer that is to take an individual member. Mark Meadows is one of the leaders of the House Freedom Caucus. He's a third term Republican from Western North Carolina, and he has on terms of the committees that he serves on, he's nowhere near the top of the dais. He is not influential, but for the fact that... North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows is with us. He goes on Fox News a lot. Maria, great to be with you. Thanks so much. First, give us a status check. And because he goes on Fox News a lot, President Trump likes him. And so now he gets to talk to President Trump several times a week, and he's got all sorts of clout and influence. Ten years ago, 12 years ago... He would have been a gadfly that hardly anybody paid attention to. I knew the different versions of him 10 years ago and 12 years ago. They just didn't have as much clout. They didn't have the outlet. They didn't have social media. And back then, also, the 24-7 cable news channels were just as inclined to cover crime and car chases. You know, they loved car chases. Late afternoon car chase in L.A. would get all three networks, all three cable networks, following their local helicopter. Now the car chase is politics. And Americans get a partial government shutdown for Christmas. It will continue. It is Congress. It is the presidency. So it's just 24-7 on that. And a guy like Meadows and other people, there are stars of the left that get to do the same thing, that have these elevated profiles because of this just sort of convoluted incentive driven world of this combination of social media, cable news, talk radio. Uh, They've come at an impasse. This is all about trying to make sure that Donald Trump does not secure the border. And and it's really more out of In fact, Mark Meadows, chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, he's emerged as one of the president's most staunch defenders on the shutdown. So then what is the solution to this? And how do things get back to the way that they used to be? This is the toughest question that Nobody has a really good answer. There are certain ideas of what to do. Some of them have really simple ideas. Dick Shelby's the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. He just thinks people need to stay in town longer. He thinks that you can— uh, Because right now, if you're in the Senate, you're in D.C. for two or three days out of the Yeah, the, the House week. and Senate schedules are remarkably similar. They come in Monday night for a very non-controversial vote or votes— They have all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, and then sometime early Thursday around lunchtime, they leave. So you only have two full days a week here in Washington. Shelby thinks that they need to stretch it out to make it at least three full days with bookends on Monday, Friday travel days just to have more time to get momentum going on these issues. They used to be able to get done not that long ago in like 2004, 2005. The House and Senate would finish up by early November, before Thanksgiving, all the time. They'd finish up their work by then. 
Now everybody expects to stay up until right before Christmas. Ultimately, the most pathetic, bleak, awful, but possibly accurate assessment came from Harry Reid's former chief of staff, David Crone, who I talked to for this story. David now lives in New York, and so he's always meeting sort of powerful people up in New York who ask him, when's it going to get better? How's it going to get better? And he uses this analogy all the time. He says, whether they're playing golf or at lunch or whatever, he looks at these guys and he says, you know those movies, the Hollywood movies, where the asteroids hurtling toward Earth? And he can see their eyes light up and they, they assume that this means that there's going to be a Bruce Willis or Will Smith who comes around and saves the day and blows up the asteroid. And that's like these guys get all excited. They want, to, they want to know who the Bruce Willis guy is. And then David looks at them and says, the asteroid is going to hit. The asteroid is going to hit. Paul Kane is a columnist and senior congressional correspondent. So I decided, you know, we need to figure out who's being targeted, who are the victims of this. And the only way to find out is by going directly to the person and telling them this horrible news that they've been, you know, victimized in this way, targeted in this way. Drew Harwell is a tech reporter for The Post who covers artificial intelligence. And a few months ago, he started hearing about this weird, disturbing phenomenon known as deepfakes. These are fake videos made with new software that regular people can use to swap out one person's face for another. And lots of people are using this to make fake porn starring real-life women, using Facebook photos or corporate headshots to paste their faces onto the bodies of women in porn in a way that looks incredibly realistic. And it was, you know, sort of disheartening the fact that these videos had been living online without them even without these women even knowing. More and more, these deep fakes are being used to target and harass women. And then the videos just live on the internet with next to nothing that the impersonated woman can do about it. So part of this reporting was going into these really dark websites where people make these fake porn videos and where people request fake porn videos to be made. On one of the websites, Drew came across one of these sexually explicit fabricated videos, along with all the Facebook photos of the woman that were originally used to make the video. She likely had no idea that this video of her existed. So Drew decided that he was going to find her. He used reverse image search to track down her Facebook account, and he sent her a message about what he'd discovered. It doesn't include your name, but the user did include hundreds of photos of yours, and I was able to run a reverse image search on one of them to find you. Another user did a test that involved your face being substituted in for another pornographic actresses. I can show you links, and maybe we can find a way to get this stuff taken down, but I'd also just like to hear your thoughts. It's a crummy thing to have to deal with. What is her reaction to that? So, yeah, she went through a few stages. The first was just sort of like surprise and stunned and just totally unnerved by the whole situation. But then she became really mad and she felt like, okay, let's find whoever this person is who's taking my photos and using them this way and and sharing them to all these strangers and see what we can do about it. She wanted to 
do whatever legal strategy she could to find this person and punish them for doing this really crappy thing. And that's where the story gets really tough because there is no easy legal recourse for this. There's no deep fake law. There's no hotline you can call to send in the troops or the detectives to find these people. And there are lawyers and civil rights advocates and privacy advocates who are pushing for ways to combat this, but it's not a clean playbook. And some of them are saying, well, this is identity theft or this is fraud or this is obscenity and going off of these current standing laws and seeing how can we make this something that could be potentially criminal because the damage is so real. But all of those are untested legal maneuvers. And even just finding the person in the first place who made these requests because they are so often anonymous and, you know, the requests are hidden on these totally faceless forums where it's really easy to disappear. She felt like, I want to do whatever I can to find this person. We went through the data of the photos. We went through the threads. We were emailing people. I was emailing and calling people. But at the end of it, we were no closer to finding this person than we were at the beginning. And, and that's just the sad truth about this. Without like a real law or a real strategy for victims to fight back, it can be really a dead end. So why are we seeing more of these deep fake videos on the internet than ever before? The technology is still pretty new. Uh, it's only been a couple of years since we've had this kind of it's like an artificial intelligence thing, but what it really is is just like a software program that can make face swapping really easy. If you wanted to do these kinds of videos 10 years ago, you would need this like Hollywood studio. You'd need a ton of expertise. You need to know what you were doing. Now it's effectively plug and play. So you can just like basically copy paste someone's face onto another moving video and the computer does all the work to make it look natural. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like you've got to do a few early technical things to set it up. But once you're going, it's incredibly easy. So I think that's a big part of it. And two, there's just, I mean, from talking to some of these deep fake creators, they find like there's this weird illicit thrill in making these. It's like achieving the impossible of putting these women into these videos that they never would have consented to, or they never would have done. And it's like, oh, I have power over this person. And this is obviously a particularly egregious way to use this technology, you know, creating fake pornography to target and harass women. But what other ways is this technology being used for things that are nefarious? When you're able to make a video that does and shows whatever you want, I mean, you can just imagine how much bad news that could be. I mean, pornography is the big thing from these deep fakes in the early days, but the fear is that they'll become this weapon to convey whatever political notion you want. You can create your own fake news. You can create your own video of a politician saying something horrible or embarrassing or damaging. You can have a president saying, I've launched nuclear missiles. You can have a presidential candidate saying all sorts of horrible things that could disqualify their campaign. So maybe somebody makes these videos down the line and everybody knows that they're fake and everybody sees through the ruse. But it also has but, this... But I'm not, I'm not actually confident in that. I feel like yeah. that we as, as a country are pretty bad at figuring out when things that we see on the internet are fake and when they're real. Totally, yeah. I mean, you can see how quickly viral misinformation 
has spread in the last couple political campaigns. And those are just words. And those were just shoddy little images put together. If you have a video that looks pretty convincing or convincing enough, that can be hugely damaging. And it also brings up the question of we're going to be doubting everything we see. We're going to be doubting even real videos. So if something, some embarrassing piece of evidence comes out about a political candidate that they want to shoot down, they can say, oh, it's fake news. You know, this is a deep fake or whatever. So it has damage on both sides. And is there any way to detect whether videos have been manipulated in this way? That's where we're at right now. And it's a huge cat and mouse game because there's the one side that is creating these videos, making them more refined, sharper, more convincing every day. And there's the flip side that's like the sort of detective AI people who are taking this forensic look at the technology and almost using it to help solve the problem too, where you have this AI making the videos, but you can also set up an AI to look for the clues in those same videos that give the videos away. And it's little things too. I mean, it's stuff like, are the ears moving as ears would look like they move in a video? Or is the hair flowing normally? Or are the eyes blinking? And so there are people who are doing this in a non-automated way where they're just going through and saying, this looks sort of fake, this is this looks glitchy, whatever. But there's also kind of a push to build a system that you could input any video and assess the truth of it from there. But as you can imagine, the creator side is where all the energy and sometimes the money and the enthusiasm is. The forensic side feels like they're a little bit outgunned. And why is there no legal recourse when these videos come up? I mean, why can't legislators just say it should be illegal to create or disseminate fake pornographic videos? Yeah, part of it is just that the technology is so new and lawmakers have not given this the time probably that it deserves. The other part of it is that it gets into this murky sort of First Amendment territory where these deepfake creators are making something new and they're making a video that is not protected by any copyright necessarily. It's their own invention. And you could argue that it's a parody or it, you know, deserves the kind of protections that we give to creative expression and satire and and all that sorts of things. You know, there's other people who say, well, these videos are so damaging. They shouldn't be protected as free speech. They're, They're weapons, effectively. They're, like, just designed to hurt people. But therein lies the question. Is there going to be enough momentum behind a legal solution to these problems? Or... Are we just going to leave it to the creators to go wild and and create whatever they want without any rules? And that's where we're at right now. Drew Harwell writes about technology and artificial intelligence. And before we go, one more thing. Okay, we're under a minute now, so we're going to start the countdown. 50 seconds to fly by. You guys ready? Are you psyched? Are you jazzed? 45 seconds to fly by. 10, 9. While everyone else on New Year's was counting down to midnight, some NASA scientists were waiting for the clock to strike 
And it was basically a big party. There were people dressed in their like space-themed outfits with planets. Someone had a dress with gravitational wave patterns on it. Science writer Sarah Kaplan reported from the solar system's nerdiest New Year's Eve party at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab in Maryland. That's where the spacecraft New Horizons was born. Brian May was there. Uh, he's an astrophysicist, but he's probably better known as the lead guitarist for Queen. <laughs> and he wrote an entire song about New Horizons that he debuted right before the moment of closest approach. New Horizons is the first NASA mission specifically designed to explore the outer solar system. It launched in 2006, and at 12.33 a.m. on New Year's Day, it finally encountered a very distant, very interesting space rock called Ultima Thule, the most distant object that humans have ever explored. We've just accomplished the most distant flyby. We are ready for Ultima Thule science transmission. Ultima Thule is 4 billion miles from Earth and roughly 40 times as far from Earth as Earth is from the Sun. Ultima Thule is an inhabitant of the Kuiper Belt, this halo of icy objects that surrounds the outer solar system. And the things that exist in that Kuiper Belt are kind of relics left over from the very earliest days of the solar system when the planets were forming. And they've basically been stored in deep freeze out in this very distant and dark place for 4.6 billion years. Ultima Thule is kind of like a time capsule. It can tell us a lot about the conditions that we formed from and how we wound up where we are today. It took some time, but today we finally got the first images of Ultima Thule. It looks like two snowballs stuck together, almost like a celestial snowman. Scientists think it probably formed from two smaller spherical bodies that slowly fused. Should old space objects be forgot and never brought to mind? So New Horizons took a shot in a science-filled flyby. Sarah Kaplan writes about science for the Post. And the new lyrics to Old Lang Syne were written by Post copy editor Brian Cleveland. That's it for Post Reports. If you've got thoughts on the stories from this episode, we'd love to hear. Tweet at us with the hashtag Post Reports. And if you're a fan of the show, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.